My wife Susan could not be with us today. She and I are celebrating our 50th anniversary on September the 20th. We had all these big plans. We thought that Teresa, our daughter, and her husband and family could come and be with us. As you know, they are missionaries in Nepal. But we found out that they're expecting another baby and consequently she's not able to travel so we had to put off our anniversary until after the first of the year. Whenever they could be over here, all of our children could be present for the celebration. So I told her that I would take her back to Biltmore, North Carolina, where we had our honeymoon. I was holding a meeting over there shortly before we married and a man came up to me and said, I've got a little cabin up here. And I'll be glad for y'all to come over here for your honeymoon if you want to do it. So we did. We went over there and stayed about three weeks on our honeymoon. I paid him $25 a week for that cabin. And I preached two or three times for the Biltmore Church while I was there. So I called them and asked if we could come. And they have plans made for us to come over for this next Lord's Day in Biltmore, North Carolina, going back to sort of our roots. And so she's getting ready for that long trip and consequently didn't try to make this trip with me. It would be hard for somebody to read conscientiously and carefully through the New Testament and not be impacted by all of the passages about how that we need to be loving people. For example, our Lord Jesus was giving a message almost in the city of Jerusalem in Matthew 22, and there was a lawyer who spoke up out of the little group that was there listening to him. And he said, good teacher, would you tell us what the greatest commandment is? Maybe he was reflecting back over the fact that the rabbis had said there are 613 laws or commandments in the Old Testament. He seems to be implying, I can't keep up with all of these. Would you mind telling me which is the greatest commandment? And our Lord said, I will. And he quoted Deuteronomy 6, 5, whenever he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In other words, you are to love God with all of your being, every part of your personality. Even though this lawyer didn't ask him to do it, our Lord said, and I'll go you one better. I'll tell you what the second commandment is, and that would be love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then he added, upon these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets of the Old Testament. That is, I am to love God supremely, and I am to love my neighbor sacrificially and sincerely. Then our Lord later would say, I want you, my disciples, to love one another. Not only are we to love God, but we are to love one another. Jesus said in John 13, 35, whenever he was meeting with those disciples in the upper room, by this 
all men shall know that you are my disciples because you love one another. He said, I've come to bring you a new commandment. It's not new in terms of time. It's been around for a long time. But it's new in terms of quality. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And not only does he mention the character of it, he also will imply the continuation of it. And that is stated plainly in Hebrews 13, 1, let brotherly love continue. You remember that in John 3, 16, our Lord said as he was talking to Nicodemus during that night's speech, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And later on, the apostle John, we call him the apostle of love, wrote in 1 John 3:16, now this is real love, for Christ to lay down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. I believe that one of the greatest passages in the New Testament about love would be 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul has been engaged in a discussion of the spiritual gifts. He will talk about the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and also 1 Corinthians 14. In 1 Corinthians 12, he will list them. In 1 Corinthians 14, he will identify them and he will give us guidance on how those gifts were to be used in the assembly back in the first century world. And right in the middle of that discussion, he inserts the way our Bibles are divided up, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It has only 13 verses to it. It's as if Paul is saying, as we talk about gifts, let us remember the greatest gift. The greatest gift is the gift of love. As we come to 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to divide it up into four parts. And we're going to think of each part as being a reason as to why you and I ought to be loving people. The first reason that he gives, and I'm going to put the text of the King James translation up here on the overhead because there would be some parts of that translation that I would like to address as I describe the different parts that we want to keep in mind of 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, you need to be a loving person because of the essentiality of love. He said that love is paramount in its importance. There's just not anything else that would be as important as love would be. And as Paul often does, he will use five illustrations to make his point. First of all, he uses the illustration of amazing eloquence. He says, though I speak with the tongues or languages of men and of angels and have not love, I'm using the word love in the place of charity, the words agape, it is the Greek word for love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Let us suppose that you were able to speak more eloquently than any human being who had ever lived. And let's say that you were also able to be more eloquent than even the angels of heaven, but you didn't have any love in your heart. Paul says in one sense, you would be like a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. You can be as straight as a gun barrel doctrinally, 
and just as empty as a gun barrel spiritually if we're not careful. We can make a lot of noise. We can make a lot of racket. But he said, if you don't have love, you'll be empty on the inside. Secondly, he uses the illustration of prophecy, supernatural knowledge. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, we say knowledge is the answer. If we know better, we'll act better. Well, there's no doubt about that. Knowledge is of great value to us. The Lord has told us to go into all the world and teach people the gospel. But remember, speaking hypothetically, a person could have spiritual gifts in the first century world and have the answer to all of life's mysteries. And he could have all knowledge. And he could have all understanding. But if he didn't have love, Paul says, he would be nothing. A person can have two or three degrees beside his name, but if he doesn't have love in his heart, then he is nothing. In the sight of God, he is nothing. The third illustration that he uses would be miraculous faith. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, now this is miraculous faith. It's not the kind of faith you and I have we have faith that's based upon the evidence of God's Word. But there was a gift of the Holy Spirit known as faith, the gift of faith. It's miraculous faith. It would be the kind of faith that one would possess in the first century world when they could go to someone who is ill and call upon the name of the Lord in prayer, and that person would be healed. It would be miraculous faith. It would be... The ability to say to somebody who is terminally sick, I want you to arise and walk, and that person would obey the command. Even if you lived in the first century world and you had miraculous faith, that kind of gift, but you didn't have love in your heart, the text says you would be nothing. As far as in the sight of God is concerned, you would be nothing. His fourth illustration would be what I'm going to call sacrificial generosity. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, let's say that you decide that you're going to give everything away. You're going to count up how much you possess. You're going to take what you have and sell it, turn it into cash, and you're going to give that cash to feed the poor. You're going to leave yourself a $100 bill and a suit of clothes. You literally give everything away. But Paul says, if you do that without love in your heart, it will profit you nothing. In the sight of God, you will not be pleasing. We often say giving is one of the ways to make yourself happy. Giving brings happiness. I would like to suggest to us that that is not taught in the New Testament. We missed a little element to it. The giving that's talked about in the New Testament is giving out of love. Whenever someone chooses because they love to give generously, then obviously that person would be pleasing to God. But if a person gives everything away, but he doesn't have any love in his heart, then he would be nothing in the sight of God. 
The fifth illustration would be that of vicarious suffering. And though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Now, I can't imagine a situation like this, but apparently this is the illustration Paul is using. Let's suppose that somebody has to die that the rest of us might live. And you volunteer. You say, I'll be the one. Tie me to the stake. Put the wood underneath my feet and set it on fire. And burn me alive. I will die that the rest might live. Paul says if you gave the greatest gift, the gift of your own body, your own life, but you didn't do it out of love, it would profit you nothing. Now you would benefit, I guess, those for whom you died. But in the sight of God, it would profit you nothing. Well, you can see Paul has used five of the greatest gifts we can imagine. In verse 1, amazing eloquence. In verse 2, supernatural knowledge and miraculous faith. In verse 3, sacrificial generosity and vicarious suffering. And he has laid all five of these down alongside love. And he implies if you have one of these, two of these, three of these, or hypothetically speaking, if you had all of these, but you didn't have love in the sight of God, you would be empty. Point number one, Paul says, I want you to be a loving person because of the essentiality of love. You simply cannot please God without it. We are to love God. We are to love one another. We are to love all of the people of the world. And when we do, we are bringing into our hearts one of the greatest things that there is. But he doesn't stop there. He says, number two, I want you to be a loving person because of the elements of love. One of the few times in the New Testament we see love being defined. It's not so much being defined as it is being described. He says, let's just picture a person who is a loving person. And let's try to describe him. How is he going to act? What kind of attitude is he going to have? What kind of behavior is he going to manifest? And if you look at this carefully, there are 15 different characteristics of love. Seven of them are positive. Eight of them are negative. So I'm going to jump around a little bit. I would like to start with the positive characteristics, and then I'll come back and run through the negative characteristics. Number one, love suffereth long, the King James translation has, but that doesn't mean too much to us. Probably it would be better to translate this, love is patient. Love is going to be patient with others, and love is going to be patient with God. The loving person will let you grow up. The loving person will wait while the truth breaks on your mind. The loving person will teach you and give you some time to understand what you've been taught. The loving person understands that you cannot throw an egg over in the barnyard and expect it to crow tomorrow. There are some things that take time. It takes time to grow a boy. It takes time to teach somebody the truth. And the loving person is also patient with God. God can't do many things for you overnight. He cannot put character in your life overnight. It takes time. And sometimes we have to wait on God. I've been praying for three children in Nepal. 
for a long time now. The oldest one is 11. I'm praying that they'll marry a Christian and have a Christian home. But God can't answer that prayer right now. I've got to be patient with God. Number one, love is patient. Number two, love is kind. Somebody asked a little boy, what is kindness? And he said, kindness is when you ask your mother for a peanut butter sandwich. And she goes into the kitchen and gets the bread and puts a layer of peanut butter on it. And even though you didn't ask her to do it, she puts a layer of strawberry jam on it. Kindness is when you go beyond the call of duty in your appreciation of the other person. Love is patient. Love is kind. Also, love rejoices in the truth. There are two sides to the holiness coin. On one side there is truth, and the on, on the other side is love. And one doesn't really appear without the other. If you're really seeking the truth, you'll be trying to be a loving person. And if you're really trying to be a loving person, you'll be seeking the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. It is happy whenever the truth is preached, even though the truth cuts on us a little bit and changes us into the image of Jesus. Love bears all things. This has to do with circumstances. It's not so much about bearing about people. We got that whenever we talked about patient. But this has to do with bearing up under circumstances. Whatever comes along, we are willing to bear it in the name of Jesus. We are willing to bear the hardships that may come. Love believeth all things. That is, the loving person trusts in the promises of God. Don't you like to be around those people who constantly remind us of the great promises of God? Tragedy comes, and they have you read Romans 8:28. All things work together for good due to God's direction. You run out of energy. You run out of strength. And they put before you Philippians 4:13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The loving person is a believing person. He is a person who looks at the promises of God and hugs them to his heart. He doesn't think about his problems so much. He concentrates upon his powers, the powers that come to him through God. The loving person hopeth all things. He is characteristically optimistic. He sees a glad surprise around the next corner. He knows he can trust in God, and he knows that God is good. That eventually God is going to come through in his own way, in his own time. Love endureth all things. It endures the hardships. It endures the trials. It endures the unpleasant things. It endures those difficulties that we didn't ask for but come our way anyway. Well, there are seven of them. Number one, love is patient. Number two, love is kind. Number three, love rejoices in the truth. Number four, love bears all things. Number five, love believes all things. Number six, love hopes all things, trusts in the power of God, and love endures all things. Eight of them are negative. So we go back to start over again. Love envies not. The King James translation has love envieth not. It is a word that could be translated by envy or by the word jealousy. 
but I would like to remind you of this fact. Envy is always a child of hate, but jealousy can be a child of love. You remember that Paul spoke of God as being a jealous God? He wants you to do what's right. He's jealous about that matter. He's a jealous God in that sense. But the word here is more on the side of envy. And remember that envy does more damage, as the old saying goes, in the vessel in which it's stored than in the object upon which it's poured. We say, well, I don't like him. I'm not going to see any good in him. And I'll speak back to him anytime I get the opportunity. All right, go ahead. But remember, you know where the damage is going to be done? You're not going to hurt him all that much. But let me tell you where the damage is going to be done. It's going to be done in your heart. You can't live a godly life with a heart full of envy. Envy is going to do more damage to the vessel in which it's stored than to the object on which it's poured. Love is not proud. It's not boastful. It vaunteth not itself. It does not brag. Love is not puffed up. It's not full of pride. But the loving person is a person who humbles himself before the word of God. Remember this. God cannot do that for you. God cannot do that for me. There are some things that God cannot do for us. He made you a free moral agent. So there will be some things you will have to do. And one of those things is to humble yourself before his word. It doth not behave itself unseemly. I guess this would be one of the reasons why I've chosen to put the King James translation before you. So far as I can tell, this is a bad translation. Bad translation in terms of we don't understand it. If I came up to you and said, have you been acting unseemly lately? You wouldn't answer me because you don't know what I'm talking about. What does it mean to be unseemly? Some translations have rendered this, and I think for good reason, love is not rude. Now, I can understand that. Love is not rude. Love will not run roughshod over the feelings of somebody else in the name of the truth. Love is not rude. I was pounding this point in one of my classes at Harding, and a young man held up his hand. He said, I think I've got it. And I said, what'd you get? He said, I think that means that we ought to open the door for our, he was a young married man. I think it means that we should open the door for our wives when they bring in the groceries. He didn't quite get it. Love is not rude. Love seeketh not our own. Love is not selfish. The shortcut to misery, according to the Apostle Paul, is make a little kingdom out of your heart. Put a fence around your heart. Don't let anybody get close to it. And on one side of that fence, you can hang up the words, I've got to look out after myself, you know. And then on another side of that fence, hang up the sign, I've got my rights, you know. And then on another side of that fence, hang up the words, you can't make me do it. Build a little kingdom out of yourself. And you know what's going to happen? You'll be miserable. And one day you'll die. Nobody will come to your funeral. And whenever you're buried out in the cemetery, the weeds will grow on your grave. You live for yourself and none beside. 
You were not concerned about anybody else. You lived for yourself and none beside as if the Lord had never lived, as if he had never died. Love is not easily provoked. Doesn't easily get upset. One young married woman was asked to, does your husband wake up in the morning grouchy? She said, no, I just let him sleep. Uh, there are some of us who wake up and we need two or three cups of coffee to make us adequate to live with. Love is not easily proposed. Love thinketh no evil. That is, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs done. I heard the story once about a couple who were having a hard time of it. And they decided this was their plan. They would go their separate ways and each would sit down and make a list of all the things that they disliked in one another. And then they would come back together and they would go over the list, see what they could do about working this out. Whatever they came back together, according to the story that I have, they read their little list. The husband went first and he had about 15 things that he disliked in his wife. He began to read them, read them almost with gritted teeth, I guess. I don't like the way you cook. I don't like the way you keep the house. He had 15 different reasons that he was going to mention. Then it was her turn. And she had the paper in her hand. She was a little bit hesitant about reading it. And he reached over and got the paper and pulled it out of her hands. And he read it. And she had written across the page, I love you too much to see any wrongs in your life. Do you remember 1 Peter 4, 8? It says love covers a multitude of sins. I'm so glad that's true. I'm so glad that Susan loves me that way. I make a lot of mistakes. She doesn't bring them up. Well, here they are. Here are 15 fingers pointing at the kind of heart I need to have the kind of life that I need to live. Fifteen different fingers. Love suffers long. Love is kind. Love envieth not. Love is not boastful. Love is not proud. Love is not rude. Love does not seek our own. It's not selfish. Love is not easily provoked. Does not wear its fe uh, feelings on the sleeve. Love thinketh no evil. Love rejoiceth not in iniquity. I think I left that one out. It's not happy whenever somebody goes astray. Not thrilled about it whenever somebody makes a mistake and goes under. Fifteen different characteristics of love. What does it look like whenever it appears in our lives? Well, here are fifteen different fingers pointing at the kind of hearts and actions that we should have. But it doesn't stop there. He says, I want you to be a loving person because love endures. I want you to be a loving person because of the endurance of love. Paul says, love never fails. Whenever you put love in your life, it will stay in your life for years to come and even go with you into eternity if you'll keep it there. And then Paul gives three illustrations. I've put this up in this fashion because I want you to see the different illustrations. We argue about this passage some, but I think if you divide it up into the three parts, you'll be able to see clearly what it's about. He says, I want to tell you about three things that will not endure. 
Love will always endure. But here are three things that will not endure. First of all, the first century of miracles of revelation, they won't endure. They were used for a while until the New Testament could be written, and then they passed away. Love never faileth. But whether there are prophecies, whether there be prophecies, that's a first century miracle revelation, they shall fail. That is, it did fail whenever it passed away. Whether there be tongues, that is, speaking in languages, they shall cease, and they did cease. Whenever the New Testament came, they ceased. Whether there be knowledge, that's supernatural knowledge, first century miracle revelation, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Peter said some things that Paul didn't say. And John said some things that neither Paul nor Peter said. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect, that is the perfect revelation, whenever that which is perfect comes, that which is in part shall be done away. We'll have no more inspired prophecies. We'll have no more inspired speaking in tongues. We'll have no more supernatural knowledge. We have the divine revelation. That's just an illustration. Love fails, but let me tell you about one thing that's going to fail, and that would be the first century of miracles revelation. Here's my second illustration, Paul says. Let me tell you about something else that's going to fail, and that would be the immaturities of childhood. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. I had characteristics when I was a boy that hopefully I don't have now. Just an illustration. Love never fails, but the immaturities of childhood will fail. And then here is the third illustration that he uses, the heavenly knowledge, the knowledge we will have of ourselves whenever we get to heaven. Different illustration. For now we see through a glass, that is through a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then shall I know even as also I am known. Somebody has said this is our now and then verse. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now. I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, there's another reason why I want you to be a loving person. I want you to be a loving person because of the excellence of love. Now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, we've often said, one day faith will become sight. And in a sense, faith will no longer exist. One day, hope will become reality. And hope will no longer exist. But love will continue. Love is active now. And it will continue with me on into eternity. And I guess throughout eternity, I will grow in my love for God throughout all the ceaseless ages of eternity. That's one way to say it. I doubt if that's what Paul had in mind. But that's one way to say it. Another thing I think we need to think about in regards to this passage, in one sense, there's only one thing. Hello? There's only one sense. Uh, one, one thing, in a sense, that will make you like God. And that's love. There are two types of children of God. There are children of God in theory. Have you been baptized? Yes, I've been baptized. Are you a member of the body of Christ? Yes, I'm a member of the body of Christ. You come on Sunday morning to take the Lord's Supper? Yes, I come on Sunday morning to take the Lord's Supper. 
But when you look at that person, he doesn't remind you of the life of God. There is the child of God who is a child of God in theory. And then number two, there is the child of God who is the child of God in practice. Jesus said, whenever you think of your enemies, you pray for them. Love your enemies, bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. Have you noticed the next three words? Verse 45, that you may be the children of your Father who is in heaven. How do you become in practice the children of God, the God who is the God of love? You do it by loving, by loving others. Living in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 I got here rather late yesterday evening I was pretty tired whenever I came in I hadn't eaten anything and so I decided I'd go over to the little diner and eat I went in I didn't look around I should have paid better attention but I went over and took my seat and I ate my little meal that I ordered and then the lady came to uh, deliver the check and she said you don't get a check I said why is that well there was a couple seated over there and they paid for your meal I came on to the motel and uh, some of the motels were already taken so I had to go to the best motel I guess <laughs> maybe that's the reason why nobody was taking it it was too high it was pretty expensive but anyway I got in to my room and there on one of the doors were these words. This is a good day for a good day. And I thought about that. You get up in the morning and you have all the characteristics, all of the elements of making a good day out of this good day that has come. But you have to take charge of it. You have to say, here's what I'm going to do with this day that God has given to me. I'm going to live as a loving person today. You take that one day. Here's the way I'm going to live this day. It is a good day for a good day. And may I apply this to this service now. This is a good service for a good service. Here you are, present. All of the elements are here. All the characteristics are here. You can take this service and make a great service out of it. If you're not a Christian, this can be the time that you become a Christian and you will make a great service out of this and you will remember this service for years to come. And if you're an unfaithful Christian, you haven't really been a loving person, you haven't really been living as a disciple. This can be the time when you resolve that from henceforth, I am going to be a disciple of the Lord. And by this shall all men know that I am a disciple of Christ because I love the brethren. John said, by this you know that you have been transferred 
from death into life because you love the brethren. This is the time for us to decide that this day will be the day that I choose to be a real disciple if that choice needs to be made. How do you do it? Well, you come to him. You come in faith and penitence and confession and baptism and you give yourself to him. And then you live in him, for him. And he lives in you. And he does his work through you as he teaches you, as he guides you, as he molds you day by day into his own image. While together we stand and sing, if you need to come, come.